Good morning. Whoa. All right. Sophia, you might turn that down just a little bit. Thank you. I get loud sometimes. I don't know. Um, sold our house Thursday, so we're done. Uh, we're done with Louisiana. That means we're now like we're here. Here. Um, felt weird a little bit celebrating because we're celebrating the reason we had I think that I believe we had such difficulty for some time selling our houses of course because we were flooded and I felt kind of weird celebrating that because of course there are people now in Louisiana and of course Houston Texas uh, Galveston and whatnot who are flooded um, so it's with a heavy heart that I celebrate um, one thing I learned one thing I think we learned through the flood, um, I can still remember the water. I used to always wonder, why didn't people get out? Like, I used to look at people being flooded and go, did they not have, did they not think about, you know, but man, until you see the water, have y'all ever seen like rising water, like real rising water? I mean, it comes like that. Um, I was watching Netflix on my couch, because that's what productive pastors do. And I remember when my wife screamed, and I was like, what? What's going on? And I was like, what, what, what's up? She was like, baby, look. And it was like bubbling out of our, our sewer and took literally, I mean, we had, nothing, we had almost 15 minutes to grab everything before our house was flooded. That quick. Didn't even think it was around. I thought, you know, our, our, our neighborhood was one of the last ones. Anyway, long story short, we had... I had two arms, so I had two babies, and Kelly had like, I don't even know, other than, yeah, you, yeah, well, I had a baby too. I can't even tell you what we picked up other than the babies. I mean, I, laptop, I guess. You would, it really makes you think, whenever your house is flooded, you will find out what's important to you. You will. And of course, we lost most of our things, but, uh. We had friends and family give so much, and we are just, I mean, just incredibly blessed. But not, what was amazing was not just w- how much we got, but where the money came from. That was amazing. People who had so little gave so much. And people who, not everybody, but some who had so much gave so little. We had complete strangers cut us four-digit checks. Just, there you go. And then we had friends who were nowhere to be found. What we learned is this. I'm going to tell you all. In the darkest moments of your life, when you need help, you will find out whose love is genuine. You will. And it will both be inspiring and it will be frustrating. You'll find out whose love is willing to do anything even when it's, un- when it's inconvenient. You'll find out who's willing to love you when there's nothing that they can receive in return. You'll find out who's willing to love you with real, genuine, selfless, self-sacrificing love. Our world today is doing everything it can to assault the definition of love. 
It wants to tell you that love is simply romantic. It wants to tell you that love is subjective and that you get to define it. This world wants to tell you that love is a feeling. But the world's kind of love cannot stand the test of trial. That's why I thought it was so ironic. I just wonder what Joel Steen's church... I, I wonder those who have bought into the prosperity gospel, who are living in Houston, what do they do with the flood? What do they do with that? Because according to their gospel, God loves you. The more God loves you, the more He gives you things. If that's the case, they just went from the happiest church to the most depressed church in a week. But we see that not only does God's love give, it also stands the test of trial and difficulty. And we're going to talk about that. The only real love we have is the love of the cross. This morning, Paul defines for us in Romans 12 what genuine love is. Immediately after telling us that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, immediately after telling us that we have to have our minds renewed, immediately after telling us that we have to be unified in one body, now he tells us how to love one another in that body. More importantly, in Romans chapter 12, verses 9-13, through 13, Paul is going to tell us how to practically love one another. I'm going to break up the second half of Romans 12 into the next two weeks. In part one today... Paul explains how Christians are to love one another. And in part two, Paul explains how Christians are to love unbelievers. And we'll talk about that next week. So this morning, if you can, stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to actually read Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. And the Holy Spirit says... Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let us pray. Lord, we stand on a foundation that is unshakable. Lord, we know that for those who have been called, we will never be clutched from Your hand. And it's with that confidence, and it's with that unconditional kind of love, it's with that gospel that we savor the joy that can only be found in the church. Teach us this morning how to love our brothers and sisters who, like us, have been conformed into the image of Christ. And all these things we ask in your Son's name, amen. You can be seated. Verse 9, Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. I mean, these are, these are, these are ver- that's a verse that you could just teach your kids. You could memorize that verse. 
Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. In many ways, the next four verses are unpacking what it means for love to be genuine. Starting with, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. I think the first place for us to start this morning is, what is evil and what is good? Well, in order to identify evil, we must identify first what is good. Jesus does that in Mark chapter 10, verse 18. He says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So goodness is only found in the living God, begging the question, what is evil? Well, Jesus answers that too. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, Jesus says this, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will give him a serpent? If you, then, who are evil... Did you catch that? If you, then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So in light of our sin, God alone is good and we're evil. I hope that comes as a... That means no one, unless we're born into the family of God, can be called good. You ever thought about that? I'm going to explain that. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Have you ever, you ever been talking to somebody and you've been talking about somebody else, kind of praising them, and they go, Man, yeah, he's, just, he's a real good guy. Real good guy. Unless they are covered in the blood of Jesus and unless their heart has been changed by the Spirit of God... In a very real sense, that's not even remotely true. Now, of course, when we say that, we're not trying to make a theological statement. We're probably just talking about, yeah, he's a good guy, he's dependable, yeah, he's a hard worker, he's a good friend. But unless we've been conformed to the image of Christ, no one is good. The Scriptures are crystal clear in their indictment against humanity. Apart from God's good presence, which was withdrawn in Genesis 3, because of course sin enters the world, Adam and Eve violate God's good law, and now He has withdrawn His presence. Now everything we think, everything we do, everything we are is evil unless we've been changed by the living God. Therefore, if goodness is only found in God, and certainly not in ourselves, then evil is the preferring, the wanting, or the treasuring of anything above God. I hope that changes our perception of evil because I think today we live in a, in a world where if you say evil, you think Hitler. If you say evil, you think ISIS, as you should. If you, say, if you think evil, you think of the devil. And you should. But the Bible presents a radically different picture and it's not that evil is some boogeyman lurking in the shadows that needs to be avoided. Evil is a personal reality you have to come face to face with and it has to bring you to your need for the gospel. Paul says, if our love is to be genuine, we begin by hating what is evil and loving what is good. That means step one to loving the good is loving the only one who is good, and that's Jesus. 
step two to loving the good is hating anything that doesn't honor Him as good. Today, I think one of, I'm just going to admit one of my weaknesses is I love to, I love to laugh. No, no, it's not, it's not simple. No, it's not. I love, I'm a, I'm a jokester. I like to joke. And I think when I became a Christian, one of the things I became instantly, when God saved me, one of the things I became instantly convicted about was when someone said, oh my God, or Jesus Christ in a joke, and I would laugh. <coughs> in my own way, I was not hating evil. If someone takes our Lord's name in vain, they are not loving what is good. They are not holding fast to what is good. They're inviting you to joke of something that's evil and you should not laugh. We call evil, we shine a big spotlight on evil and we hold fast to what is good by the way that we participate in evil and Christians have no, nothing to do with evil no more than light has with darkness. Please don't miss this. Paul is saying that you actually, as a Christian, you have to hate something and it's evil. You don't even joke about it. And I'm just confessing to you as your pastor, sometimes that's where the devil gets me, is because something's funny, I'll let things slide. But when it comes to your God, you will speak volumes by what you laugh at and what you don't. Do you hate evil and do you hold fast to what is good? Because I never wanted to be that guy at work who like didn't laugh at the joke when everyone else did. I didn't want to be that guy. But I'm telling you, if you're, not, if you're the only one who doesn't laugh at a really, really profane, dirty joke, you're not only saying that you have integrity, you're telling everyone around you your entire office, you're saying, I hold fast to what is good, and I hate what is evil, and I will not participate in it. It affects the way we say things, and it affects the way that we react to things. Somebody recently told me, they said, this is somebody that saw something that uh, we put our sermons online, and they said, oh, so you talked about Charlottesville at church. And I said, yeah, yeah, we did. Oh, wow, that's bold. I went, why is it bold? We're just, we're just hating evil. We're calling evil by its name. And we're hating it. Why? We're not hating it for its own. We're hating it because it's a perversion of the goodness of God which says that the gospel goes forth to all nations. If it's evil, we should hate it. If it's good, we should love it. Now, we're going to get into... I think this is a good time to talk just briefly about the way we treat homosexuals and transgender people. Notice that Paul says to hate evil, not to hate those who do evil. The reason we hate the evil of homosexuality is because it takes away from the good plan of God in marriage. And that's important for us to remember. There was, something, there was, a, there was a document that was published... Uh, this week called the Nashville Statement. Over 150 pastors, professors, seminary presidents signed this document and it just had an uproar 
amongst liberals and, and, and unbelievers. And the, the statement was more or less the evangelical position on biblical manhood and womanhood. And it was more or less evangelicals coming up with an entire statement about what we believe about homosexuality, what we believe about man's, God's design for man and woman in the sanctity of marriage. And I wanted to read Article 8 because I think it speaks very highly, it speaks to why we hate evil. It says this, We affirm that people who've experienced sexual... He's talking, just before I read this, it's addressing those who have the temptation for same-sex attraction, but who don't indulge in it. It says, We affirm that people who experience sexual attraction for the same sex may live a rich and fruitful life pleasing to God through faith in Jesus Christ, as they, like all Christians, walk in purity of life. We deny that sexual attraction for the same sex is part of the natural goodness of God and the natural goodness of God's original creation or that it puts a person outside the hope of the gospel. Did you see how they phrased the sin of homosexuality in terms of God's goodness? Don't miss that. Ultimately, that's what sin is. It's a perversion of God's goodness and that's why we hate evil. So when we hate evil, we hate not, not just evil for its own sake. We hate it because it's less than what it should be in the design of God. We hate homosexuality because it falls short of God's good design for marriage. We hate pornography because it falls short of God's good design for female beauty. We hate evil because evil is a distortion of good. We're called to hate evil, but we're called to hate it in the right way. Back to Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen is America's, he's the pastor of America's largest church. 52,000 people in Houston. And it came out that Joel initially closed his doors to the refugees in Houston, which is, you know, shameful. And people really, really hated him for that. Really got on him for that. And I, I think, you know, in some ways he deserved it. But then he did open his church to the refugees. And it seemed like a lot of evangelicals enjoyed hating on a sinner more than they did loving and holding fast to the good, which is that 10,000 people got a new home when they didn't have a place to go. Do we enjoy holding fast to good more than we do hating evil? If you want to hate divorce because God hates divorce, that's good. But you, may, you better make sure you know how to love a divorcee. Today, it seems like a lot of people are, are good at hating evil, but they need some help loving the good. Unless we love what is good first, we're incapable of hating evil in the way that God wants us to. The cross itself is our lens for holding fast to what is good and hating evil because the cross not only shows us the deep, deep love of Jesus, it also shows us how deeply heinous sin is. Parents, notice that Paul doesn't say, know what is evil and what is good. That's called your conscience. Technically, you don't even have to be a Christian to have a conscience. 
Our prayers for our children should not simply be that they know the difference between good and evil. Our prayers should be that the Holy Spirit changes their hearts so that they love what is good and they hate what is evil. Do you understand the distinction? It's like back when I was an unbeliever, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I just loved the evil. Sometimes you need not just a, a, an enlivened conscience, you need to love what is good. Paul goes on in verse 10, Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Christians are called to love one another differently. We love... Christians love each other with a different love than they love unbelievers. Does that make sense? And let me explain that. I love my bro. Anyone who's a brother, how many people have a brother or sister? Do you love your brother or sister differently than you love other people? Yes. But why? What is it between Christians that's different than our love for unbelievers? Here it is. Puritan Richard Sibbs had this to say about what Christ sees in us: We are weak, but we are His. We are deformed, but yet carry His image upon us. A father looks not so much at the blemishes of his child as at his own nature in him. So Christ finds matter of love from that which is His own in us. He sees His own nature in us. We are diseased, but yet His members. Whoever neglected His own members because they were sick or weak? None ever hated His own flesh. Can the head forget the members? Can Christ forget Himself? We are fullness as He is ours. We have love itself clothed with man's nature, which He united so near to Himself that He might communicate His goodness the more freely unto us. God loves us so dearly in Christ because He sees Jesus in us. We love each other in the church because we see Jesus in one another. That's why we want unbelievers to come and be saved so that we can see Jesus in them as well. I love Josh Danforth. I actually been thinking a lot about Josh lately because I grew my beard out for a month and a half. I don't know if y'all noticed last Sunday it was getting like but then I because I, I that was my goal. <laughs> and I got to about yesterday and I was like I don't know what you do, but that's just I, I was like Dan Dan Force on another level. I can't I can't reach that. <laughs> But I love Josh. I love Josh with a brotherly affection. But it's not just because Josh has a great beard. It's not just because of his personality. I love Josh because I see Jesus in Josh. The love I have for Josh is deeper and truer than a love that I could have for someone who I don't see Jesus in. Because, of course, Jesus is the only one good. Therefore, when I have Jesus and He does, that makes our, our love and our affection that much more real. We want that for those who don't know Jesus. Contrary to what some may think, the moon does not have light of its own. At nighttime, when you see the moon lit up, whose light is that? That's come from the sun. So when I see that beautiful light from the moon, it's actually coming from where? The sun. 
the moon's radius, radiance is from the sun. It's the same thing with Christians. When people see something beautiful, when people see something holy, when people see something good, when people see something loving, we're like little moons. It's not ours. It's coming from the sun. S-O-N. This is why the friendship and the brotherhood between Christians is so much deeper. We're indwelled and fueled and enlightened by the Son of God. His goodness has captured us. When God changes a cold, dead heart, He literally takes a black hole incapable of accepting light and He turns us into little lunar beacons reflecting the joy and the love and the beauty and the holiness of God. I love that phrase, outdo one another in showing honor. This world is busy trying to outdo one another in gathering reputation, in gathering wealth, in gathering fame, in gathering honor. And we're trying to outdo one another in showing honor to other people. He's not here. I'm sorry. Was, is Emily in here? No. I wanted to brag on someone who goes to our church, Scott Jenkins. Raise your hand if you know Scott. You will never hear Scott brag on himself. Ever. I mean, almost sometimes to the point that he's like almost self-deprecating. He's just, just, he's such a humble person. You will never, ever hear him brag or say anything on himself. You'll hear him compliment his wife. You'll hear him compliment his son. You'll hear him compliment his daughter. You'll hear him compliment family members. He'll hear him compliment you. But he doesn't want to even accept your praise. That's why I love being around Scott. He is li- he's like a little moon. He never has never wants anyone to see him. It's just like he just has the he has the love of Jesus. And I I want to encourage you if you don't know Scott, you probably won't even notice him in a room. He is one of the most loving people I've met. I'm glad I'm actually glad he's here. He would hate what I'm saying. I actually wanted to read a quote before I do. Do y'all ever have you ever been around a mom who's kind of annoying because all she ever wants to do is brag on her kids? I think that's kind of what God had in mind for the church. He wants us bragging on each other. He wants us coming around and seeing us and go, oh, here they go, they're gonna talk about how much they love their church. You know what? I'm okay with that. If the only thing people have to say is being annoyed by how much we love seeing Jesus and other people, I think we're doing pretty good. I wanted to read an excerpt from a sermon. It's, it's just three sentences. Jonathan Edwards preached this sermon. It's called, Heaven is a World of Love. That's one of my favorite sermons. The sermon, as its name implies, is describing what heaven is like. And he comes to the point where he addresses the seeming problem of some people having more riches in heaven than others. And his response is pretty simple. In heaven, that's not a problem. And here's what he says. The inferior glory will have no temptation to envy those who are higher. For those who are highest will not only be more beloved by the lower saints for their higher holiness but they will also have a more of a spirit of love to others. They will love those who are below them more than other saints of less capacity. Those who are in highest degrees of glory will be of larger capacity to love 
and so of greatest knowledge and will see most of God's loveliness and consequently will have love to God and love to saints most abounding in their hearts. In heaven, those who have higher honor want to show more honor. Can you wrap your mind around that? You know, I used to have this conception of God. I think I might have discussed this one time. I used to have this conception of heaven as like a great big football stadium where we're all at a really big game. It wouldn't be an Alabama game because everyone was happy. Um, And then we're all looking down and Jesus is in the center. I always kind of thought of heaven like that. Now, there's a lot of flaws to that. And I always kind of thought that heaven, you know, I, Billy Graham would kind of be on the front and I'd be in the nosebleeds. That's kind of how I've always, in my flawed thinking. But if I'm going to steal that analogy for a second, the what we should think about in heaven is, in heaven, Billy Graham wants to give his seat up for me. The people who have highest honor in heaven are the people who love more and want to love and show honor even more. Isn't that just... Exciting to think. And, and the point is, in heaven, everyone loves with perfect love. And our job as the church should be to reflect that today on earth. We should be a church that wants to show other people more honor and more praise. We are people who want to be hidden. Casting light on others. In heaven our zeal will be according to perfect knowledge. And I think God has chartered the church to be an outpost for His kingdom where people get to see honoring love in us. As I said earlier, our love will be tested during trial. Verse 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Cody and I were actually talking this week about the fact that for some, when things get hard, they leave the church and you don't see them for like three months. And then you'll see them again. And you'll go, hey, what's what's going on? And they'll say, well, my, you know, my, my, my aunt was sick. And we'll go, is there anything we can do for them? No, we're fine. Well, why didn't we, why do we know? We could have prayed, you know. I think a lot of times we don't use the church in the way that we should, because the church should be here during the darkest moments of your life. The church is not something to withdraw from when things get hard. The church is there to be there for you and to shine the love of Christ on you when things get hard. We want to be here together with you when you go through hard times. For others, when things get really hard, they lean on the church. They say, hey, can you pray for me? But that oftentimes, here's the reason people don't do that, is because in order to let the church do its job and work its power, you've got to be vulnerable. And people don't want to do that. You know, one thing I don't want to pastor is finding out. Now, some things you gotta, you know, some things are just private. One, some of the, one of the things that just kind of hurts me as a pastor is when I hear something just huge in someone's life, like, I don't know, you have cancer. And I didn't know. I mean, it's in Acts, in Acts um, chapter 7, you know, they send people to go to the saints in Jerusalem because there are those whose job is just to pray and to minister of the Word. 
My job is not just to sit up here and, and preach to you every Sunday. It's to pray for you. Our job is not here just, just to take you out and have a little potluck and do salt shakers and get together in a small group. It's to pray for you throughout the week. Sunday nights, the one thing I love about Lauren, Lauren and Logan's group, we actually write down every prayer request and then we email it out during the week so that we can all eat, pray for each other during the week. Are you praying for the needs of your church during the week? Please pray for our church. Pray that our husbands would love their wives. This is one thing I pray all the time. That our husbands would love their wives like Christ loved the church. I pray that one all the time. Pray that our husbands and our men would be leaders worth being followed. So then, of course, that our wives and our women can submit to their authority because they're under men who give their very lives for them. That's my prayer for our families. I hope you're praying that for us. I hope when someone, if you haven't seen someone in two or three weeks, you give them a call. Hey, where you been? Sorry for being nosy. I'm sorry for being kind of corny, but I, I, I miss you. There are many people... I kind of wanted to end with this. You know what's really cool about four verses? These four verses in Romans is all four verses are basically an explanation of what genuine love is and all four verses more or less describe the life of Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Christ defeated Satan in the desert and overcame temptation by holding fast to the Word of God and defeating Satan by depending upon the Father. Love one another with brotherly affection. Jesus called 12 ordinary men, spent three years teaching them to be fishers of men in brotherly affection and calling them brothers. Outdo one another in showing honor. Jesus washed their filthy feet. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Christ not only taught with authority, He summoned the power to heal, heal the sick. He cast out the money changers from the temple and He loved the Father with a radical love. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Even when His own disciples abandoned Him, He did what? He went to the garden and prayed to the Father, Not my will, but yours be done. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Christ went to the cross to die for the sins of the world, conquering death, sending His Comforter to the church. How could you not love this man? How could you not follow this man? How could you not believe in His Gospel? How could you not give your life for Jesus? Jesus is the embodiment and the fulfillment of genuine love. He wants that love to be seen in you. He wants people, when you're dead, to go, God, they were just so loving. He wants people, when you leave the room, to go, man, I want to be around them. They just had such nice things to say. They were always just so uplifting. Don't you want to be around those people? Oh, I was talking to a youth camp this summer. And I was talking about how, we were talking about um, gossip, I think, to high schoolers. 
and I was talking about how in high school, I don't know, this is kind of a stereotype, but it, you know, how every really, really pretty girl had that one friend who was like, you know, not maybe quite as pretty, but she was always like following her around. And I was talking about how there was always a friend who was always kind of, they weren't the leader, they were always kind of the one that followed them. Why wouldn't you want a friend like that? Because no one wants to be the friend of the person who only thinks about themselves. The reason people love those kinds of people is because they're following you, they love you, they're not thinking about themselves. People love others who love them. Which means that the love of Jesus isn't just supernatural, it's actually quite practical. Because no one loves hanging around with an arrogant person. I want to end with this. Those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus, we hate what is evil and we love what is good because we've been remade into the image of the one who is good. We love with brotherly affection because we now call our Savior brother in the household of God. We serve the Lord because He served us with His life. We are hopeful and patient in tribulation because He delivered us from wrath and we contribute to the needs of the saints because He has met our every need. Does your life look like Jesus and do you love with genuine heartfelt, gospel-filled, son-centered love. My prayer for for us this morning is not just that we would be able to come to church. It's not just that we would have new people come. It's not just that we would go to our small groups. It's not just that we would know how to serve others. It's that when we do all these things, we have love at the center. God wants His church to be a church of love. And the way that we love one another speaks volumes about the way that we love our Savior. This morning I challenge you, does your life look like Jesus's? Are you contributing to the needs of this body? And are you doing it, are you motivated by the selfless love that we've been shown in Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You so much for Your your genuine love, Your self-sacrificing love that You poured out for us. Lord, the love we have in this life is, is, is imperfect. We are selfish in our selfish in our flesh. We are very self-seeking and we can often fail you with our weakness. But Lord, we thank you for being a God who's faithful. And we thank you for setting our hearts ablaze with the love of the gospel. Now these things we ask in your son's name.